When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. The English Civil War, part two. Charles I of England became king at the age of 24, proclaimed on the same day as the death of his father, King James I, on the 27th of March, 1625. He was more reserved than his father, with a strong sense of formality and order. Influenced by the Spanish court, where he had spent many months, he gave a more formal tone to his court and dressed in black. He had a stutter which made him shy and hesitant in speech. Raised in England since he was an infant, Charles dearly loved the Anglican faith and saw it as a happy medium, a common sense route between the twin extremes of Catholicism on the one hand and the various versions of Protestantism across Britain. For a king of a Protestant nation, his choice of queen aroused much suspicion among his subjects. On the 1st of May he married the 15-year-old daughter of King Henry IV of France, Henrietta Maria. Parliament was unsettled by the marriage, for Henrietta was Catholic. Charles assured Parliament that anti-Catholic legislation would remain in force, but it also informed the French that concessions would be made to the Catholics. This was not the last time when Charles made contradictory promises to different parties. In his book, The English Civil Wars, 1640-1660, Blair Warden describes one of Charles's most disastrous qualities – as that no one could trust him. And on top of his duplicity, there lay failings of political imagination and of personal presence and authority. Quote, his goals required arts of management and persuasion, to which he was unequal, largely because of an inability to enter the minds of people with views different from his own, or to take sensitive or tactful account of their concerns. An inner insecurity made him wary of public display and denied him regality in manner. He sought self-certainty through a ruthless determination to be obeyed. When he bargained or compromised, it was only while secretly plotting the destruction of those with whom he negotiated. End quote. Charles I came to the throne in a difficult period for the Protestants in Europe. 
His brother-in-law, Frederick V, Elector of the Palatinate, had just been ignominiously deprived of his territories by troops of the Habsburgs after failing in his attempt to acquire the crown of Bohemia. Catholic armies were now sweeping into northern Europe. At the same time, King Louis XIII of France was in conflict with the Protestant minority, the Huguenots, the main focus there, an intermittent rebellion in La Rochelle, an important port on the Atlantic coast. Charles kept his father's closest adviser, George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham, who sought to assist fellow Protestants on the continent. His campaigns, however, were invariably unsuccessful. He was criticised for the failure to adequately help Ernst von Mansfeld, leader of the main remaining Protestant army in Germany. Buckingham also got the blame for a bungled attempt to seize the Spanish port at Cadiz and burn the fleet in its harbour, and separately a failed expedition to intercept a Spanish silver fleet from its American territories. Worse was to come in 1627, when an attempt by Buckingham to relieve the siege of La Rochelle turned out to be yet another miserable failure. Parliament strongly resisted funding for Buckingham's adventures, which not only failed individually, but never became a coherent foreign policy. Twice they attempted to impeach the Duke, but the King had rescued him by dissolving it both times. The general public were outraged, and on the 23rd of August 1628, the Duke was stabbed to death at the Greyhound pub in Portsmouth, where he had gone to organise yet another campaign. Throughout, Charles had attempted to get the finance from Parliament without discussion. He believed, writes Peter Ackroyd, quote, that his regal authority was paramount and that the role of Parliament was merely a compliant instrument to finance his proposals. He had certain firm convictions that could not be altered by arguments or by events. If you agreed with them, you were a friend, but anyone who questioned his judgment were enemies from that moment forward. End quote. But members of the Commons understandably refused to support policies they did not understand and upon which they were not consulted. Charles had two of them, Sir John Elliot and Sir Dudley Diggs, taken to the prison in the Tower of London, but within a week he was compelled to release both. It was not a good precedent for a king who tried to appear to be resolute, but in truth prevaricated. Amid this political turmoil, controversy arose in religious matters between the Puritan members of the church and a group named the Arminians. The latter, led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord, aimed to restore to the church and the clergy the political role and social standing of which the Reformation had deprived them. Some of them were dismissed as papists, but in fact, in contrast to Roman Catholics, their objective was a purified national church. 
In January 1629, Charles I opened the second session of the English Parliament, which had been prorogued in June 1628 to address the perennial issue of the funding of the monarchy. Parliament, understandably mistrustful of the king, were inclined to pursue their own grievances first, not least the perceived threat presented by Lord and the Arminians to the Church. The king lost patience and dissolved Parliament. And so began an 11-year period of personal rule where Parliament was prorogued. It is seen by some as a conscious experiment in the viability of royal absolutism, with the prospect of an acquiescent nation obeying the king's commands. His subjects were simply asked to trust his good intentions. In many ways, despite his autocratic style, Charles acted in moderation. On the positive side, Charles was a great patron of the arts and added substantially to the royal collection. As court painter, he chose Anthony van Dyck, a young Flemish painter who produced a string of portraits of the royal family. One famous picture was from 1633, when Van Dyck portrayed the king riding through a triumphal arch in the classical style. And as renovator of the royal residences, Charles also encouraged architecture. As an example, he commissioned Inigo Jones to design a pavilion for his wife, Henrietta Maria at Greenwich, creating a Palladian building in sprawling parklands. The classical style matched the sense of order which Charles encouraged at his court. Without the means in the foreseeable future to raise funds from Parliament for a European war, Charles made peace with France and Spain, so one upside was a period without warfare for his kingdom. To tackle the monarchy's large fiscal deficit, Charles resurrected all but forgotten laws to acquire the funds he needed. The king also derived money through the granting of monopolies. One such monopoly was for soap, pejoratively referred to as Popish soap because some of its backers were Catholics. Another source of resentment was Charles's act of revocation, whereby all gifts of royal or church lands made to the nobility since 1540 were revoked with continued ownership being subject to an annual rent. The biggest tax imposed by Charles was a feudal levy known as ship money. Previously, its collection had been authorised only during wars, and only on coastal regions. Charles, however, argued that there was no legal bar to collecting the tax for defence during peacetime, and throughout the whole of the kingdom. Some people who refused to pay the ship money were sent to prison or pressed into the army or navy. One such opponent was John Hamden, a Buckinghamshire squire, who argued that the king had challenged the fundamental rights and liberties of the people. He was held in prison and later became a celebrated parliamentary commander in the Civil War. Meanwhile, religious tensions continued to simmer. Even non-Puritans were alarmed at Archbishop Lord's clerical reforms and puzzled by the King's support for them, more so when in 1637 he sentenced to imprisonment and mutilation three Puritan pamphleteers who had defied his censorship of the press. 
His strong-arm tactics ended up destroying the delicate base which under Elizabeth and James, the Church of England had carefully established in national sentiments. Many laymen and clergymen who had thought of themselves as loyal servants to the crown were now seen as his enemies. In spite of these issues and the benefit of hindsight of what followed, most historians consider the decade of Charles's rule as quite moderate. The government was still underfunded and lacked the kind of bureaucratic support that was being developed elsewhere such as France. But there seemed no obvious reason why personal role should not continue indefinitely. It was hardly a tyranny, at least except in Ireland, where an intensive campaign of anglicisation was taking place. However, the trigger for civil war came neither from England nor Ireland, but from Scotland. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. After his accession to the throne in England, Charles insensitively put off his acceptance of the Scottish crown, causing great offence north of the border. Charles belatedly and reluctantly made the first visit to the country of his birth eight years into his reign. He did not like the thought of Scone, the traditional crowning of Scottish kings, for he found the little chapel there too small for his visions of grandeur. So he opted for Edinburgh, the capital of the palace of Holyrood House. Charles showed his characteristic lack of sensitivity when he declared that the Kirk, or Church of St Giles, was henceforth to be recognised as an Anglican cathedral, something anathema to Presbyterians. Also, by loading the Scottish Privy Council with bishops, he angered the nobles, who saw themselves being passed over for jobs, and power that had once been theirs by right. In 1636 he issued the Code of Canons, a set of laws designed to bring the Scottish Kirk into line with the Anglican Church. As if that wasn't enough, the next year he ordered that a newly revised English prayer book was to replace that of the Scots. What caused real anger was that this was forced into Scottish churches without any discussion or vote by the Scottish Parliament. In churches throughout the land, churchgoers openly rejected the prayer book, 
Several riots broke out, and soon petitions were rolling into Edinburgh from around the country, demanding the withdrawal of the book. A rebel parliament formed and composed the so-called National Covenant, a pledge to defend Scotland's rights and to declare precisely what would and would not be tolerated by Scots on matters of church and state. Over time, the pledge was signed by tens of thousands. In November 1638, a convocation of Scottish leaders met in Glasgow Cathedral and officially threw out the Code of Canons and Prayer Book, and the bishops were deposed. Open conflict broke out when Charles attempted to suppress the rebellion by force by sending the army. In what became known as the First Bishops' War of 1639, the Scottish rebels, led by the mercenary soldier Alexander Leslie, confronted Charles's Englishmen and forced them to sue for peace after just a few weeks of skirmishing. The Scottish Parliament met in June 1640 in defiance of the King's wishes and confirmed the decisions made in 1638 in Glasgow Cathedral. And so Charles, without the resources available to put down the rebellion, had no choice but to do what he had avoided for 11 years. He summoned the English Parliament to try and secure the funds for military action. In the resulting general election, only 62 of the seats were contested with the other candidates selected by the principal landowners in the country and by the municipal corporations of the towns and cities. Other members of Parliament were chosen by individual patrons who owned the right of nomination. There were no parties in any modern sense. Most members came to Westminster with a lively sense of local complaints, but often when congregated together found that they had grievances in common. The newly elected Parliament opened on the 13th of April, 1640. The King's representative revealed that a bill had already been prepared. It was only necessary for Parliament to pass it before they were allowed to discuss their individual grievances. This was completely unacceptable to members, one of whom, named John Pym, spoke especially forcefully for the power of Parliament in decision-making and condemned the religious innovations introduced by Lord. Grievances of his 11 years' silence now poured forth in an attack against ship money, monopolies and other measures the King had imposed. Charles kept on insisting that the requested financial subsidies be granted to him, but it was apparent that the English were not inclined to pay for a war to enforce on Scotland a religious and political programme, at least not without a proper debate on their grievances. When Charles heard rumours that a petition was being drawn up asking him to come to terms with the Scots, he angrily dissolved Parliament. Because it only lasted three weeks, it became known as the Short Parliament. Peter Ackroyd writes that he had achieved nothing, but yet changed everything. Parliament had given voice to the frustration and anger of the country at the behaviour of the King and became a national forum where none had existed before. Within hours of dissolving Parliament, Charles was busily engaged with financing and raising a force to conquer Scotland. 
his attempts to mobilise an effective army were no more successful than before, as most of the men were uninterested in pursuing the King's quarrels with Scotland. The Scots themselves were heartened by events in England and mobilised an army of their own, again under Alexander Leslie. Leslie put together an army of 25,000 men to take the fight into England. As they crossed the River Tweed, a declaration was issued to the effect that they were not marching against the English, but against the Papists, the Arminians and the Prelates, and that they would remain in England until their grievances were heard by a new Parliament. Viscount Conway, in charge of the English army, had been ordered to fortify the banks of the River Tyne and to defend Newcastle. He left two-thirds of his troops to protect the city and took the remainder to a ford in the river at Newburn. The Scots took up a commanding position on the north bank from which they fired on the enemy. The English were outnumbered about five to one and probably had little stomach to fight, so they fled after some of their number were killed. The Battle of Newburn, a resounding victory for the Scots, could be considered the first of the Civil War. The English retired to the borders of Yorkshire, leaving the counties of Durham and Northumberland in the hands of the enemy. Charles reluctantly signed the Treaty of Ripon in October 1640, in which he agreed to leave both countries in the hands of the Scots as a pledge for the payment of their expenses, until a final arrangement was worked out. The King, his authority and tatters, was left with no choice but to summon another Parliament to grant him the supplies which he needed to make the payments. Now at his subject's mercy, his experiment of absolute monarchy has come to an end. What was to be called the Long Parliament opened in November 1640, amid widespread feeling that the country was plunging into a crisis. King Charles tried to exert his authority by asking the members to lay aside their suspicions, but the mood of the House would not be improved by bland reassurances. The collapse of the King's authority left a vacuum of leadership which was filled in the Commons by John Pym. His position as leader of the House gave him a powerful position both to manage the agenda and to give the House a sense of direction. The first months focused on two main items, firstly agreeing a settlement with the Scots to return home, which they did in August 1641, and secondly, political reform. Charles, politically isolated, caved into a series of legislative initiatives. This included the outlawing of ship money, a bill forbidding the dissolution of Parliament without its own consent, and the abolition of the Star Chamber a court composed of privy councillors and judges which had become synonymous with political oppression. Archbishop Lord was sent to the Tower of London, where he was tried for treason and executed four years later. The King's leading ministers were impeached or fled abroad, including the much-hated Earl of Stafford, who was executed on Tower Hill on the 12th of May, 1641. During the summer, Parliament debated a number of fresh initiatives. They agreed to a grant to the royal household, but on the understanding that no new money would be given without their permission.
Parliament naturally needed revenue itself, both for its own work and payment to the Scots, and so a poll tax was introduced to raise additional income. The leading members of the Commons published their speeches. Likewise, the sermons of popular preachers were also circulated, all of which fed a thriving industry of pamphleteering. It was all part of a vigorous debate among the general public on political and religious life, and questions such as what were the grounds for a just monarchy. There was now an opportunity for a resolution to the crisis, if a new consensus could be found between the King and Parliament. Two factors stood in the way. Firstly, Charles I, though reduced to impotence, was determined to reassert royal authority. This was made clear when he insisted on travelling to Scotland in August 1641, ostensibly to oversee the completion of the settlement with that kingdom, but in reality to try and get Scottish support for recovery of his power in England by offering whatever further concessions were needed. The second factor was the development of divisions over the future of the Church. A group of militant Puritans presented the so-called Root and Branch Petition, which demanded the abolition of the Episcopacy, that is, the hierarchical structure of church governance. This split the anti-royalist coalition, many of whom wished to retain the Elizabethan settlement of the church. By the autumn of 1641, John Pym and his allies were struggling to keep control and had already lost the support of the House of Lords. To regain the initiative, they put forward a document called the Grand Remonstrance. Its main intention was to assert the claims of Parliament by firstly listing the reforms already passed by the Long Parliament before proceeding to list outstanding grievances. Central to the petition was the belief that there had been a Catholic conspiracy to subvert the religion of England and that steps had to be taken to retrieve the position. On the 22nd of November 1641, following a protracted debate, the Grand Remonstrance was passed by a narrow margin, 159 votes to 148. Its passage divided Parliament and drove some prominent parliamentarians who had previously been critical of the King into the Royalist camp. Charles long delayed giving a response to the document. It was at this delicate moment when news reached London that a rebellion had broken out in Ireland. The anti-Catholic sentiment in Westminster and Edinburgh had heightened the long-held fear of Irish Catholics of an assault on their religion. And so a group of Ulster Gaelic lords mobilised to seize Dublin Castle by force, impose military control throughout the country and arrest concessions from King Charles. However, they lost control of their followers and the wave of popular protests spread through and beyond Ulster. The violent tactics with which the Royal Executive in Dublin responded to the rising incited the massacre of around 2,000 Protestants, perhaps more. Horror stories reached England of Protestant men, women and children being herded together to be tortured, drowned or burned. Soon the numbers of the murdered and sufferings of the victims were being exaggerated in accounts by refugees and published widely in print. 
Everyone agreed in London an army would have to be raised to crush the rebellion. The problem was that by law any such army would have to be raised and commanded by the king. Yet Parliament feared this would give Charles an instrument for recovering power. On the 3rd of January 1642, King Charles made a fateful decision. With the crisis in Ireland and optimistically believing that the thin majority for the passing of the Grand Remonstrance showed that John Pym and his allies were losing control of Parliament, he ordered the arrest of Pym and four associates in the Commons. The next day, Charles shocked members of Parliament by entering the chamber to carry out the arrest personally, only to find that the accused had fled. Losing his nerve, a few days later, Charles and his Queen left London and set up base in York. In so doing, he lost control of London, and civil war began. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe Key Battles podcast. The music earlier was from John Dowland, a collection of instrumental music called Lacrimae, or Seven Tears, the first part of that. And I'll play out with a piece from 1589 by the French composer Toineau Arbeau. It's called Belle qui tienne ma vie. Both come courtesy of museopen.org. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you can join me next week for the third part of the story of the English Civil War. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.